All right, Acts chapter 2. Everybody got a Bible? There's three Bibles over there. If you don't have one, you can follow along in a Bible, please, today. All right, today we're going to talk about a healthy church from the book of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 2. What does a healthy church look like? Well, Acts 2, 2 helps give us a good picture of what a healthy church looks like. By the way, I'll remind you, there are no commands in the book of Acts, right? This is, this is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Many, many weird things come into churches as a result of uh, following everything in the book of Acts. I don't recommend that. Um, that's bad. That's a bad hermeneutic. Okay, but uh, there's certainly some good things we can we can draw from the Book of Acts. Now, when Christians realize the importance of the church, and it certainly is important, and 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 maybe you find yourself at some point in your life looking for one to be involved in, we we often run into the wall of confusing choices. There's a lot of choices, right? In fact, I've had people ask me. Uh, you know, why are there so many churches? Why are there so many denominations? It's just, particularly to unbelievers, it's confusing. The number of denominations, according to David Barrett in the World Christian Encyclopedia, he said that the number of denominations claimed to be a part of the Christian religion throughout the world was estimated at 20,800, and that was in 1980. Wow. Well, you can see why people are confused. So simply realizing the importance of the local church and, and membership in it is, is obviously not enough um, to end the war for many believers who are struggling to find a healthy church. They must then fight the battle of finding a church in which they can worship, in which they can serve God and be committed to one another. Well, this message today is to really designed to help us to know what to look for in a healthy church. And if you know what to look for, and hopefully we can flesh these things out amongst ourselves, so we we ourselves can be a healthy local church. But it's also going to provide a standard by which we can judge the quality and, and the progress of our own local assembly. That's That's my thinking on this. So how are we to know what a healthy church looks like, right? How are you supposed to know what it looks like? Does God kind of give us a, a description? Well, yes, in many ways he does in the Bible. Of course, the Bible is our only rule for faith and practice, and many of these things we can practice that we see here. So we're going to get an idea of by looking back at the first Christians in Jerusalem today, okay? So hopefully you're in Acts chapter 2, right? Acts chapter 2. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, we're just going to look at a few few highlights here. Acts 2, starting in verse 42 in my Pastor has called this, verse 42, the four core activities of the local church. Verse 42 gives us the four core activities of the local church. These are the things we need to focus on and spend a lot of time and effort in, in doing. All right, Acts 2.42, look what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to, tending the temple, 
together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early church described in this passage was successful in many ways. And by the way, that's not just in numbers, of which we see here, but they were also successful in God's eyes. It was vibrant. It was pleasing to God. It was, of course, as a result, they were also growing in huge amounts. Therefore, we, we can learn from this. Now, please understand something. I'm not saying that we should or we can, uh, we can do everything exactly as the early church in Jerusalem did it. That's not what I'm saying. Otherwise, Otherwise, I would have to suggest to you, go and buy robes, uh, stop speaking English, learn Greek, walk everywhere in sandals on your feet. But that's, <laughs> that's not the point, okay? That is not the point. But there are certainly some basic features that characterize the church here in Acts chapter 2 that should characterize our congregation, even though we're you know, far removed in culture and time. First of all, let me start off by thinking of this negatively, okay? Uh, Let's talk about how not to measure a church. Here's how we should not measure a church, which is sadly too often the measure of churches. Number one, the success or effectiveness of a local church should not be measured by the number of people who attend. That's, That's not the measure. What is the measure? The Bible is the measure. The Bible is the sole authority for all faith and practice. And by the way, the number of programs that a church boasts is also an, in, it's an inadequate indication of the effectiveness and the health of a church. Just because a church, is, you know, their, their calendar is loaded every single day of the week with all kinds of programs doesn't mean it's healthy or effective. Programs can be motivated, in fact, by unbiblical purposes or can even be implemented with an improper philosophy. By the way, learn this phrase if you don't know this already. Theology drives philosophy. Philosophy drives methodology. So you wonder why some churches do things, which is their methodology? Theology is what drives that. The theology is ultimately what drives that. The bad theology, you're going to end up with bad methods. All right? So this is one reason why Scripture over and over exhorts us to sound doctrine. Anyway, that's another sermon. Well, let's look at the essential characteristics that must be behind the scenes of any healthy church. There's, there's certain things that are key, foundational. The presence of these characteristics made the early church, well, frankly, it was exciting. I would have loved to have been there. It was effective. Uh, they must, and, the, and by the way, these things need to be present in any church today to be successful in God's eyes. And by the way, that's the important part. Successful in God's eyes. Not in our eyes or, you know, the world's eyes or the media's eyes or anyone else's eyes, but God's eyes. Here's the first characteristic. The first characteristic of a healthy church, according to the book of Acts, here is 
They had a continual devotion to the apostles' teaching. Continual devotion to the apostles' teaching. This is the most fundamental trait for any God-honoring church to have. The church was founded as a direct result, in fact, of the teaching of the apostles. Read the book of Acts, which we will in just a moment. Um, we, we see Peter, remember, he was, Peter was the one, one of the apostles, preaching there on the day of Pentecost, which we'll read that in just a moment. So our text says that the believers in Jerusalem here were continually devoting themselves to this, the, the apostles' teaching. Now, that's an interesting word. The Greek word there translated devoted literally means to be strong towards. They were strong towards Bible teaching. That word tells us the early believers were earnestly and perpetually dedicated to the apostles' teaching. It wasn't just a one-time thing. They, They were wholeheartedly into this, continually. It also may speak of enthusiasm and excitement toward it. They loved the apostles' teaching. The Greek word translated their teaching, by the way, encompasses both the ideas of the content as well as the manner of the apostles' teaching. So it's both the content and the manner. So God's concerned about both of those. So let's think about that. Since since the word teaching there in Acts 2.42 is encompassing both, let's look at them, okay? Number one there, the, the content of the apostles' teaching. What exactly did the apostles teach? What did they teach? We find the answer, well, in, in the rest of the book of Acts, okay? As well as the New Testament, right? Since most of the New Testament was written by apostles. It is also found in the entire Old Testament, by the way, because that was the inspired scripture for the apostles. That's what they studied. That's what they taught. There was no New Testament at this time. That was written later. So the apostolic teaching is, well, let me sum it up for you. It's everything that's contained in Scripture, everything in our Bibles. Uh, Paul said in Acts, it's the whole counsel of God. Well, specifically, it includes at least two things. Number one, it includes the truth about God's character. Okay, We need to know about God's character. We need to know, for example, that God is sovereign, God is just, God is love, God is grace, and many, many more things. Okay, We need to know that. That's in the Scriptures. Number two, it includes practical admonitions and instructions. There's all kinds of practical stuff there. Okay, You want to know to have a, how to have a healthy marriage? That's in the Bible. You want to know how, how to deal and how to make a budget and how to use the money that God gives you? That's in the Bible. You want to know how to be a good employee or employer? It's in the Bible. Those are just a few practical things there. So in short, the apostolic teaching includes, according to 2 Peter 1.3 then, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that Scripture is sufficient? It's called the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Do you really believe that? Because that's what it says. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Everything, talking about the Bible, has everything you need that pertains to life and godliness. If Christians believe that, 
that means they shouldn't be going to philosophy or psychology. They shouldn't be going and talking to their unsaved friends and getting their opinion. Right? That's not the authority. So a good test for a particular church then is, is, is really, could, could the criticism come to a church be that there is too much teaching? If there's ever criticism that there's too much teaching, then that probably shows it's a healthy church. When people start getting the itching ears, you know, and start criticizing length of sermons, how much teaching's going on, and this sort of stuff, that's a sign of an unhealthy church. So that's the content. Let's look at the manner of the apostles' teaching. How, in other words, how did the apostles teach? We, we didn't read this part, but we will look at, at Peter's sermon here. We're going to get a glimpse of the manner of the apostles' teaching in Peter's sermon that's recorded here in Acts chapter 2. Okay, So go to verse 14. Acts 2, 14. We're going to read it, and then I'll mention a few highlights. Okay, You get an idea of, of how Peter preached, and, and this is a good example of preaching. Of course, it's in the Bible, right? Look at Acts 2.14. 2.14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He said this, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord sit at my Lord. The, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We'll stop there. So we get a glimpse of apostolic preaching here. What does an apostolic sermon look like? Well, there you, you got one right there. A Holy Spirit-inspired sermon for you. So we, we should desire to be part of a church that practices the same kind of preaching that the apostles did. The early church was devoted to this, continually devoted to it. Peter's message was effective and it was pleasing to God for, for several reasons, okay? Let me, let me just give you a few highlights, if you will, from, from Peter's sermon here. Number one, the first reason that this was effective and it was relevant, it was, well, it, because it was relevant, okay? Peter's sermon was relevant. Peter began his servant by his sermon by relating the events occurring in and around his audience. He talked about something they knew about that they were familiar with. He answered their questions. He provided specific information that they needed to understand in regards to their current situation. That's good, relevant preaching. So the Bible, the, the criticism about the Bible that that preaching the Bible's irrelevant is is not actually correct. Number two, it was biblical and expository. Peter's sermon was biblical and expository. Peter quoted passages from the Old Testament. If you've got a Bible like mine, you'll notice all the Old Testament Scripture references look different. Did your Bible show that? You can see Peter quoting from the from the prophet Joel as well as from... From I'm assuming it's coming from the Psalms there, since it mentions David. So it's biblical and expository. He proceeded to explain the meaning of all those passages. He didn't just quote the Old Testament, but he explains the Old Testament. And then he made application to their lives based on those scriptures. But number three, it was also Christ-centered. you notice how often Peter talked about Christ? His sermon was Christ-centered. Centered. The subject of Peter's message was the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that, that is the same subject that should dominate any good preacher's conversation and preaching. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. That's good preaching. And number four, Peter's sermon was specific and personal in application. It was very personal and specific. In fact, you, you notice he addressed his audience directly. In fact, he, in fact, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. And then he says, you crucified and killed Jesus. 
Can you get any more specific and personal than that? Of course not. So Peter didn't just stand up there and just merely lecture them and tell them all kinds of facts about Jesus. He made it personal. He talked to them. He wasn't just trying to impress truth upon their soul. He wanted the Word of God to affect them. Number five, it was authoritative. Peter's sermon was authoritative. He didn't just merely talk about his opinion. This wasn't Peter's opinion. You notice Jesus never, or Peter never said, well, I think this. No, he didn't do that. He boldly declared the non-negotiable facts of the gospel. He commanded them, in fact. You even see the word hear there in the Scripture. Peter commands them to hear the truth. It's not an option. And number six, his sermon was purposeful in intent. Peter had a purpose in this. It was, it was going somewhere. Peter's words were designed to persuade these people to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. That's good preaching. So he wanted the Holy Spirit to produce this effect in them and to incite in them to, to do something with this preaching. That's good preaching. Well, those people didn't, did not gather together to just be entertained. They didn't just gather together to talk about their feelings in some kind of a, a group therapy session, which sadly takes place in too many homes around the world. People, uh, you know, they, they share their ignorance, right? Their, their opinions, their ideas, their feelings. Pool their ignorance together in, in these kind of groups too often. They did not gather to contemplate the ideas of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle. That's not what this was about. Well, what was it about? Well, Ephesians 2.19, look at this. Ephesians 2.19 says this, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's what it's about. So the church has been built, as you see here in this scripture passage, the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But notice who's the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Now today there's, uh, well, I, I firmly believe today there's no more apostles. I don't believe there's any more prophets today. The foundation of their teaching says was laid, and it doesn't need to be laid again. Okay, the foundation's already laid. You and I are building. When we build local churches today, and by local churches I mean people, when we establish healthy churches, we're building on that foundation. The foundation's already there. That's what Scripture says. So we need to be sure that the building of the church is then conforming to that foundation. Right? When somebody makes a foundation, you build according to that, right? If you don't, then you got a problem. <laughs> so if any building is going to stand, then, then that building needs to take the same shape of the foundation, right? That's the point. Well, look what 2 Timothy 4 says on the screen here. Paul says to Timothy here in 
2 Timothy 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's a command, by the way. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, if that was happening at that time, then we can be assured it's also happening today then, right? So a healthy church is one where people desire and respond to biblical preaching and teaching. Praise God. That is happening in our world today. It's healthy to, um, in a healthy church, good teaching and preaching is provided regularly and perpetually. Unfortunately, many churches today kind of have, have relegated the Bible to kind of the same status as the Queen of England. In case you don't know what I mean, uh, the status of the Queen of England is she's kind of like the figurehead, right? She, she doesn't make laws, right? The parliament does making of laws. She's just the figurehead. She has the title of a ruler, but she doesn't participate that much in the actual rules and, and the governing decisions that are made. Well, that's sadly what happens in too many churches. The Bible is not the sole authority of faith and practice. It's kind of relegated to the same status as the Queen of England. So the real power, uh, of course, in like places like England, for example, resides in the prime minister or in the parliament, right? It's the same as here in New Zealand. The real power is not with the Queen of England, it's with the prime minister and our parliament and the MPs. So, the point being, the Bible needs to be our final authority for faith and practice. Well, listen to what one of my heroes, John Calvin, said in regards to Acts 2, verse 42, as he quotes on our Bible passage here. Here's what he says about these four core activities of a local church. I quote, he says, Do we seek the true church of Christ? The picture of it is here painted to the life. He begins with doctrine, which is the soul of the church. He does not name doctrine of any kind, but that of the apostles, which the Son of God had delivered by their hands. Therefore, wherever the pure voice of the gospel sounds forth, where men continue in the profession thereof, where they apply themselves to the regular hearing of it, that they may profit thereby, there beyond all doubt is the church. End quote. Now that's awesome, because remember, this is coming from a time period when the church had been corrupted. And when people were struggling to to see a church, what is the church? They were really struggling to know what is the church at this time period, in the 1500, 15 to 1600s. And so John Calvin, God gave John Calvin a great mind to think about this and, and help be very helpful to people to see, well, what is the church? This is the church, according to Acts 2.42. The church focuses on these things. Sadly, the church during, the majority of the church during John Calvin's time had lost, had lost sight of, of John, or, or Acts 2.42. 
The Bible was not the sole authority for faith and practice in much of the church at that time. That's very helpful. So the, the, let's move on to the second characteristic. The second characteristic of a healthy church is a God-centered focus. Must have a God-centered focus. If we want to be a healthy church, we must be God-centered in our focus. Now look at Acts 2.43. Acts 2.43. Acts 2.43 says that here in, in the church at Jerusalem, it says, Awe came upon every soul. The conviction of sin that followed Peter's preaching was not some momentary panic, but it actually filled the people with a lasting sense of awe. In fact, some Bible translations use the word fear there. Uh, God was at work in them, and, and, and fear was directed toward someone. Where was the fear directed toward? Toward Peter? No. Fear wasn't directed toward Peter. The, the fear was directed toward God. By the way, this awe could be called a respectful fear. A respectful fear. The Greek word translated awe there is, is the Greek word phobos. Sound familiar? Phobos. It, it's, we get the English word phobia. Right? You've heard of phobias, haven't you? All kinds of phobias out there. For example, what is arachnophobia? What's that? The fear of spiders, right? There's all kinds of phobias out there. Right? That, that's, that's the word being used here, the Greek word phobos, or which we get our English word phobia. So people who claim to have phobias, uh, though, you, you know, they're, they're often irrational, right? Maybe not the spider one, but often we have irrational fears or phobias. But these Christians here, these Christians here, were they were not in an irrational state of mind. They were in control. They're, they knew what they were thinking. They had a solemn recognition of the presence of a holy God. They knew that they were sinners. They knew they stood guilty before this holy God and they deserved condemnation. And for that reason, they had a phobia. And it was a good phobia and it wasn't an irrational one. So to sum this up, they were constantly worshiping God. That's what they were doing. And by the way, we can and we should experience the, the same kind of awe or reverential fear that these people experienced. It's, that's a good thing. We should. In fact, Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, fear of the Lord. Psalm 2 verse 11 gives us the same idea. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So that's obviously a good thing. But should we have joy and gratefulness toward God? Should we? Of course we should. Absolutely yes. But those good feelings must always be accompanied with the the respect and this fear that goes hand in hand there. So without respect and fear, what, what often happens? If, if somebody doesn't have respect and fear, there's often this flippancy. There's this um, a lackadaisical uh, apathy, almost, if you will, that, that comes amongst God's people. Should we be flippant toward God? No, of course not. We need to realize that a church does not exist primarily to benefit us. The church exists to glorify God. 
That's the purpose of the church. The number one purpose. Your whole reason for existence and being here is to glorify God. In fact, you see this idea in Colossians chapter 1. It's on the screen here for you. It says, For by Him, that's Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. By the way, does that include the church? Absolutely. God created the church for Him. And it goes on to say, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Preeminent has that idea of he's, He is supreme, the most highly honored being. And He deserves that honor and glory. So what is the purpose of most churches today? Do you think that's the purpose of most churches today? I hope it is. I hope it is. <laughs> uh, got to be honest with you, I, I have this, this, this fear that that may not be the case, though. I, I, tend, to, I tend to think that, that too many churches think the primary purpose of the church is to solve people's problems and to meet people's needs. Okay. God can do that. His Word can do that. But that shouldn't be the number one purpose of the church. And if that is the primary purpose of a church, then what happens is you become man-focused. Everything is man-focused. That's what, that's what drives everything. And of course, we shouldn't be man-focused. Remember, the whole point of this is to be God-focused. You say, well, what does a man-centered church look like? Well, let me just give you some thoughts here that I've, that I've gathered from various places as I've been reading. Number one, a man-centered church will follow extra-biblical traditions. A man-centered church will follow extra-biblical traditions. Uh, Jesus talked quite a bit about these extra-biblical traditions. As you know, he had uh, great condemnation for the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their extra-biblical traditions. Uh, in Mark chapter 7, there's a, there's a good example of that. Um, <clears throat> Jesus, uh, Jesus said there, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Whoa! Great danger there. Now, Jesus went on to say, You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, your, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, You say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Whoa! By the way, that was not a compliment, of course. That was not a compliment. Jesus was condemning them for their man-made traditions. So that's what a man-centered church does. We need to be aware of that. Um, 
we need to be aware that we all have blind spots, and it's easy to have blind spots. We can't even see them. That's why they're called blind spots. We need to pray that God would protect us from man-centered traditions. Pray that God would make us a God-centered church. So number th- or number two, sorry, a man-centered church will hesitate to address certain doctrines or avoid them entirely because they might be offensive. Well, let me ask you, Is does a healthy church, we talked about this last week, a healthy church avoid certain parts of the Bible because they might be offensive? Is that what a healthy church does? No, of course not. Paul said in Acts, we're to preach the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Number three. Number three, a man-centered church will choose worship and teaching styles primarily on the basis of people's preferences. Now let me ask you in there, who becomes the authority when a church starts doing that? Who's the authority? Of course, the people become the authority. God is no longer the authority. So my friends, we should not conform ourselves to what people think. That's not the authority. In fact, look what uh, the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Wow. I mean, that's an apostle speaking. (laughs) And he's not even judging himself. Uh, again, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So that's our responsibility. Number four, man-centered church will not practice church discipline. Man-centered church will be like, like the church in Corinth. They're boasting about the immoral man in their church who has his father's wife and doing nothing about it. That's what a man-centered church does. True love, by the way, will confront sin and carry out discipline when it is necessary, just as God does. Remember in Hebrews chapter 12, I think? Remember, God says He disciplines those whom He loves. He chastises His sons because that's the loving thing to do. In Matthew 18, there's the example of church discipline there, several steps of that. We often think of the excommunication as church discipline, but may I remind you, church discipline should be taking place every single week of the year. Every week. Okay? Church discipline is iron sharpening iron. When you come and you help me, and I come and I help you, that's church discipline. But if we refuse to repent of our sin, then it, then it goes through all the steps. And that's the loving thing to do. We love God when we do that, and we love that person because their greatest problem is their sin. So it's loving toward the person, it's loving toward other unbelievers, it's loving toward the congregation, it's Loving toward everyone. And number five, 
A man-centered church will have very little emphasis on prayer. Very little emphasis on prayer. You remember one of the core activities of the local church there in Acts 2.42 is prayer. Prayer. So this is why we we pray in every service. This is why we have a midweek time when we're trying to get together to pray. This is why I'm teaching on prayer at the moment in our midweek service. Because prayer is one of the core activities of the local church. So we need to be like the early church here. And one of the ways they were healthy is they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Let's move on to the third characteristic of a healthy church. The third characteristic of a healthy church is a loving concern for the needs of people. This church had a healthy concern, a loving concern for the needs of people. You can see that in many different ways here. This concern for people's needs, by the way, needs to be kept in balance. Okay, It, it, it can become off balance to the neglect of other important things. Okay, If we neglect the apostles' teaching, then we've become off balance. So the needs of people never should become more important than God himself, of course. God must be number one. The needs of people should never, should never trump truth. Okay? So we do need to be balanced on this. But a healthy church has loving concern for the needs of people. We don't ever want to get to the point where we're only committed to teaching and worship. Okay? Uh, I hope you see that as unhealthy. Okay? Being continually devoted to the apostles' teaching is a great thing. It's, it's healthy. But if all we did is we come and we cloister, you know, we, we become like a, like a modern day monastery, <laughs> right? And we, all we do is we learn about scripture and we never give it out. Whoa. That's not very healthy. That's an imbalance. We need to have a concern for the true needs of people. In fact, look what 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2 says here. It says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am how much? Nothing. God says, I'm nothing. Whoa. And you mean I can do all these great things? I can serve God, but if I don't do it out of love, I'm nothing. Yep, that's what God says. Proverbs 29, verse 7 says, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. You see that? God says you're wicked if you ignore poor people. People who are in need. By the way, that can be applied to poor spiritual people. Okay? As well. Right? Not just financially. An unsaved person is in great need of spiritual help. They're poor, spiritually speaking. Even even believers who are struggling in some way are poor, spiritually speaking. So we need to care about them. So the church in Jerusalem was balanced. They were biblical. They showed great love for each other, but but they weren't cloistered. They they didn't become some kind of self-absorbed group, some some cult or sect. No, they, they were also concerned for people outside their congregation. You say, how? Well, let's talk about that, okay? 
take a look at Acts 2.42, it says that the church, number one, they showed a concern for others in the body of Christ. They were concerned for others in the body of Christ. Acts 2.42, verse says that the members of the church at Jerusalem, what did they do? They devoted themselves to fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. That's what verse 42 says. Verse 44, look at verse 44, it says they were together. They were together. They weren't isolated. They weren't just doing their own thing. Verse 46 says they were regularly eating their meals together. Okay. By the way, let me make sure you understand this. Fellowship is not when you talk about the All Blacks. Okay. Fellowship is not when you talk about the Olympics or, you know, your, your hobby or whatever. That's not fellowship. Okay. Fellowship is when you talk about the Bible. Fellowship is when you talk about what God's doing in your life or in someone else's life. Fellowship is when you're reaching out and you're helping a, another person, giving them biblical wisdom. You're coming and you're, you're, you're invading into their life and helping them, being iron, sharpening iron, that's biblical fellowship. That's what they were doing. They developed these close relationships. They spent, obviously, a significant amount of time with one another. This togetherness, by the way, was not only physical, but it was also emotional. It was also spiritual. They needed one another. They knew that. One of our big problems is we don't think we need one another when we do. Now, how was this loving unity expressed? Well, it was expressed in sacrificial giving to physical needs of other believers. We can see that in verses 44 and 45 here. Because it says in verse 44, all who believed were together, had all these things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing to the needs or proceeds to all as any had need. Okay? So they showed concern for others in the body of Christ. They were sacrificially giving to meet physical needs of other people. By the way, let me just say this here, because uh, <clears throat> I know the communists love this verse. <laughs> communists love this verse. This is not communism, okay? This is not communism. The idea here is not that we all sell everything to the church and then and then the church have some little elder elder board that de- determines how we can make all of us the same. That's not what this is talking about. <laughs> this this giving, let me just be clear here, the giving was voluntary, generous sharing of the resources when specific needs were were known and made available in the church, people voluntarily gave the government didn't come in or church authority didn't come in and rip everybody's money away from them and determine the best way to spend that. That's not what was going on here. Okay? This is not communism. So God clearly commands the church to care for the needs of its members. That's what's going on here. Now this is important because the church in the Bible is referred to as the family of God. In fact, look at here on the screen, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15 says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. 
It's a household of God. It's a, it's a family, in other words. Church is a family. God says you're supposed to look after your family members, right? That's the normal thing to do. It's abnormal to ignore your family and not look after them and care for them. In fact, uh, you've probably heard the verse in the same kind of context, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yeah, I, I know the verse is specifically, in the context here, specifically referring to persons in your physical family. Okay, I know that. However, in this greater context of the book of 1 Timothy, the greater context application spills over into your spiritual family too. Okay? That's the point of 1 Timothy. Talking about your spiritual family, how to behave in the household of God, in this family that God puts us in. So it's proper and right to look after each other and pray for one another, and if there are physical needs, to help one another. Okay? God has given us all different gifts, right? I'm lacking in lots of gifts that you have. God wants you to come into my life and help me in those ways. I have things maybe you don't have, and I can come into your life and help you. That's the way God designs the body, right? Number two, the church, not only did they have a concern for their, their own church members, but they also had a concern for those who were outside the body of Christ, Right? Where's that? That's in verse 47. Look at verse 47. It says the early church was having favor with who? Who were they having favor with? They were having favor with all the people. All the people. And then as a result, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So in the book of Acts, uh, the, uh, the Greek word for people most often refers to those who are unsaved. Those who are unsaved. That's what it usually refers to. And that's what it's referring to here. So in our church today, we can't necessarily expect to have the approval of unbelievers in our community, okay? Uh, I mean, that's just the reality, all right? There, there's some, some unbelievers, you're just, you're, you're never going to be on their side. You're never going to see eye to eye with them. And, and some of them are just going to be angry because you hold to the truth, okay? That's reality. But, but nevertheless, God still wants us to strive for peace. We don't need to be obnoxious Bible thumpers, right? We don't need to be that. Uh, you can still, even, even if you don't see eye to eye with someone, let me encourage you, seek to understand that person before you're understood. Okay? Even, even if the person is breaking clear commands of Scripture, even if they don't even believe in God, Seek to understand that person. Love them. Ask them, why do you believe that? You can still befriend them without compromising the truth. So, the reality is we're never going to have the approval of everyone in our community. But we cannot expect God to be adding converts to our fellowship uh, like this church did. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't. We should, that's, that's not a reality. But we can pray for that end, can't we? Even the favor, by the way, enjoyed by the church at Jerusalem, even that didn't last. That didn't last every day. But we can be loving and we can be faithful 
uh, in the proclamation of the gospel. We can be faithful in loving people and telling the truth, telling them who Jesus is and what He's done for them. We can do that and leave the results to God. For too many Christians, though, the nearest, I think, I think the nearest that, that an unbeliever comes to the truth is they see the fish sticker on the back of your car window. Right? You know what I'm talking about? You know, that fish symbol that was supposed to be a Christian symbol? You know, some people think, you know, that's, that's my idea of evangelism. I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus by putting a fish sticker in my window or on my bumper. <laughs> Whoa. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, okay? But, that 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 is not the best way to penetrate the community with the gospel. Okay, well, let me end by reading John Polhill's um, part of his commentary that's uh, coming from verses forty-three to forty-six. Here, it's on the screen. It kind of summarizes the passage. I've, I've found this really helpful in meditating on Acts chapter two. So let me share this with you. Okay, I qu- I'm quoting him here. Verses 43 to 46 give an ideal portrait of the young Christian community. Witnessing the Spirit's presence and the miracles of the apostles, sharing their possessions with the needy among them, sharing their witness in the temple, and sharing themselves in the intimacy of their table fellowship. Their common life was marked by praise of God, joy in the faith, and sincerity of heart. And in it all, they experienced the favor of the unbelievers, and continual blessings of God-given growth. It was an ideal, almost blissful time, marked by the joy of their life together and the warmth of the Spirit's presence among them. It could almost be described as the young church's age of innocence. The subsequent narrative acts will show that it did not always remain so. Sincerity sometimes gave way to dishonesty, Joy was blotched by rifts in the fellowship, and the favor of the people was overshadowed by persecutions from the Jewish officials. Luke's summaries present an ideal for the Christian community, which it must always strive for, constantly return to, and discover anew if it is to have that unity of spirit and purpose essential for any effective witness. End quote. Amen to that. I hope you can amen that. Right? Remember, these are not commands in the book of Acts. These are descriptive, not prescriptive. But nevertheless, we get a good picture of a healthy church here. Would you pray for this, please? Please, pray for this. God would make us healthy. God would make us healthy believers. God would make us healthy church. God would build and establish other healthy churches in New Zealand and around the world. Pray that God would cause us to be faithful. God would make me a faithful preacher and that the Word would be claimed accurately and faithful every week. Pray that God would protect us from Satan in this world and our own indwelling sin. Strive to be committed to this local church. Strive to obey all the one another commands so that God would be pleased with us. Well, there's many ways we can apply this. May God, by His grace, make us a healthy church. Let's pray.